Welcome back to another episode of Creedal. I am joined today by my friend Andrew Pettiprin, who's been on the show before. And we are talking about a number of things, but uh, the, the reason why I contacted Andrew uh, and asked him to come on uh, this time was because I was watching this Netflix movie called Don't Look Up, which you may have seen. It is, uh, I think at least last week, it was like the number one Netflix movie for that week. And I think it set records, Andrew, for, for the number of times or number of hours, number of minutes viewed across Netflix. So it seems like half of Netflix's, Netflix's subscribers have now seen this film um, starring uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence as Kate Blanchett in as well, Tyler Perry. I mean, it's really kind of an all-star. Oh, uh, not to mention uh, Meryl Streep, of course, um, and Jonah Hill. Like, it's really an all-star cast, and there's a lot to sort of unpack in this movie. Andrew wrote an article about the movie on Word on, uh, on WordOnFire.org. Unbeknownst to me, when I asked him to come on, he said, hey, I've already written about it. Let's do it. Uh, so I will link to that article in the show notes. But Andrew, welcome back to Creedal. Lovely to have you. Great to be back, Zach. Yeah, uh, I always enjoy your insights and love uh, hanging out with a fellow film buff. Um, I should mention to listeners who did not uh, listen to your previous appearance on this podcast that you are the fellow of popular culture at the Word on Fire Institute. You're an author. You are a former Anglican priest. And now you are with your family in full communion with the Catholic Church, having entered in, I think, 2019. Um, yes. And you're a graduate, graduate of uh, Yale University, where you earned your MDiv, and Oxford University, where you earned an MPhil. Right. And I know we talked about Oxford before, but I don't remember. What did you study at Oxford, Andrew? I studied European literature, actually, Zach. Okay. I wanted to be a uh, medievalist, early modern literary scholar and linguist. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I went to England and spent most of my time reading French poetry, believe it or not. Wow. That's, yeah. uh, that's, that's pretty distinctive. Um, kind of weird. I mean, Oxford, though, you're in the footsteps of Lewis and even more so studying medieval literature in the footsteps yeah. of Lewis. But people don't realize that that was that was Lewis's academic specialty. He wasn't a theologian properly considered. He wasn't he didn't teach on the theology faculty. He was a medieval literature guy, right? Yeah, he was. And in fact, it could be that I decided to study that discipline there because I revered Lewis so much. Mm -hmm. And I had the incredible uh, opportunity to be at Lewis's college at Maudlin College. That was my oh, wow. college at Oxford. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh you know, I forget which one you were at, Christchurch? Christchurch, yeah. 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 Good memory. You, you you remember more about my Oxford time than I did about yours, so apologies. <laughs> well, no, I don't know about that, but yeah, it's fun that we were both there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wish we would have overlapped. Uh, that would have been fun. We could uh, grab grab a pint at the, the Eagle and Child. I've got a few years on you, I'm afraid, Zach. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, well, let's, uh, let's talk about this Don't Look Up film, Andrew. And then I would also love to pick your brain on this um, this recent op-ed by Ross Douthat in the pages of the New York Times in which he makes the very pro provocative claim that we need more sex and romance of the movies. Uh, you might think, hey, this this guy's a you know Catholic, obviously Christian writer. Why is he saying we need more sex and romance? He's not exactly making the claim that that, that sounds like uh, you know at first uh, at first pass, but we can talk about that as well. Um, but let's unpack. Uh, Don't look up. Now you've written. The, uh, the sort of uh, examination of this at the Word on Fire uh, blog. I will link to that in the show notes. But tell our listeners uh, who have not seen the movie, what is Don't Look Up? Well, as you said, almost everybody has seen this movie, it seems like, from yeah. the statistics. I mean, I, I don't really know anybody in my office or my family who hasn't seen it. It's just uh, everybody's checking it out. And I think for good reason. It's a very funny movie. It's a very entertaining movie. Uh, I enjoyed the movie. I know that there are some, some critics of the film who thought it was a little bit too ham-fisted or a little bit too preachy or something like that. But part of what I get out in my article is I, th I think it, it isn't quite. I think that it actually um, conveys something that transcends just kind of, you know, facile politics. And 
you know, the idea of the movie is written by Adam McKay, who, who, um, or it's directed by Adam McKay, who directed a bunch of like kind of raunchy, funny movies in the early 2000s and beyond. And you know, he's made a lot of, a lot of movies that I enjoy, uh, you know, viewers beware if you, if you click on some of those or check out some of those, it might be a little bit too much for some people's sensibility. I totally get it. Um, but in this one, he, he's sort of, you know, playing with, uh, you know, some of these like tensions in our culture now between like, you know, scientism, science, like belief in science, and then sort of people who either like from an informed perspective or just a kind of willful belligerence or something decide that they're just not going to believe the data. They're not going to believe in science, you know? And so you get this sort of divide between people who are kind of the, you know, those who know the elites, you know, and then those who um, are, are just, you know, just just sort of sheep or whatever yeah. um and you know it, it's a it's a very funny premise you know you have meryl streep playing uh, uh the president of the united states who is this sort of like you know kind of caricature of like a um, political opportunist like you know basically sort of a right-wing kind of yeah. you know, populist sort of person but also not particularly ideological i mean she you know uh, right. she's all that matters to her is poll numbers and, you know, appearance and all of that sort of thing. Right. And, and the, the campaign trucker hats reappear, but this time they don't say make America great again. They say, don't look up. They say, don't look up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and that, that sort of, that sort of leads to the big, the big issue in the movie, which is the, the, the coming of this comet, which is supposed to destroy the entire planet. And, you know, some people read it as like an allegory for the pandemic, maybe, right. or, you know, kind of more accurately, probably something like an allegory for climate change or something. I think, I think that was what McKay had in mind when yep. he was originally writing the script. Um, but it works for a whole number of things that we're thinking about in our culture today. Just, you know, that you have this sort of supposed elite kind of science oriented class, you know, who sort of are, you know, presenting the data with 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 all of their passion, with all of their energy and just, you know, screaming into the wind to to get people to hear them out and still, you know, only around half the country that corresponds maybe to one of the two political parties is going to hear them and the other are going to believe that they're being duped or that they're, you know, that they're being lied to or that the picture is more complicated than that. Um, so it really touches on issues that we can all, we can all relate to, you know, yeah. but yeah, the premise is that there are these, there are these scientists. There's, uh, uh, Jennifer Lawrence who plays this, uh, Kate Dibiaski character who's a graduate student and she's, you know, on duty one night looking through the telescope and discovers this comet that's going to destroy the earth. So she calls in her advisor who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio to, um, to, to check her numbers and, you know, verify yeah. everything. And, and they decide it's, it's real and it's going to hit the earth. And so one thing leads to another. And before they know it, they're in the white house uh, trying to pitch their case to the president that the human race is in uh, imminent danger. And it just goes from there into all kinds of hilarious and disturbing and, you know, interesting directions. Yeah. I found it to be, um, I don't know. I found, I found the, the sort of arc of my experience as I was watching the show was first, oh, this is kind of interesting. And then I dipped down into sort of, this is actually a rather, it feels like a rather sort of predictable political caricature that's quite obviously a commentary on climate change and how half the country isn't taking climate change and its threat seriously. And then I think I, by the end of the movie, I sort of come back up and said, oh, yeah, actually, I think there's maybe something more interesting that's being said here. Um, I also think there's a, there's a good possibility that some of the most interesting things that are being said are things that Adam McKay isn't even intending to say. Yeah. Um, 
And so, so there, there's sort of like a, a, a second or even a third level of analysis that we can do in the film and say, what's, what is this, what does this reveal to us about ourselves, about the nature of being human, about the nature of the, the particular political moment in which we find ourselves? Yeah, I think that's the real, the real thing for us to highlight is, you know, whether Adam McKay really realized it or not, we, we don't really know exactly. But, you know, for me, the crux of the whole, the whole message of the movie is this character Yule, played by Timothy yeah. Chalamet. Um, you know, and I think he he just on the surface represents this sort of burnout flyover, you know, middle America sort of loser who has these, you know, who who has a Christian background, but doesn't really live a kind of Christian morality per se. You know, he's in his, he's sort of rejected his parents, yeah. you know, stuffy attitudes towards things. And he likes to do drugs and steal and and, you know, have, you know, sex and things like that. But at the end of the day, he still has this sort of like Christian eschatology built into his psyche. Like he, he still basically, and, and actually has a kind of a view of God's providence. You know, he basically sort of, he basically lives in the world as if God's in control of it and God's going to do what God wants to do. And, you know, you can sort of enjoy life or not, uh, but it, it really isn't worth it to kind of get bent out of shape about how to save the world per se. Um, not that he's, particularly opposed to like, you know, trying to do good things to help people or anything like that. But he's just sort of like, you know, if the comet's going to destroy the earth, it's going to destroy the earth. And funnily enough, you know, at the end of the movie and, and um, you know, a small spoiler, but, you know, the comet, the comet comes, uh, we'll just, we'll just say that. But yeah. uh, when it does, you know, he's the only one who's equipped for the moment in a sense, like he's the only one who, who knows how to pray. And, and when he does, he just asks God for the simple gift of grace, just to, to encourage people to face the fear. And, um, you know, he sort of inspires this whole group of people sitting around the table to just be grateful, even yeah. though they're, they're facing their death. Yeah, that was uh, that was certainly an unexpected part of the film. Uh, I was watching it with Sally and we got to, I mean, for again, you know, we, we already spoil a little bit so that the comet does indeed impact Earth. Um, and you know, you don't actually know if that's going to happen up until the final sort of 15 minutes of the, sh of the movie. And then you realize, oh, this is, it's, it's happening, right? This is the end. Um, and, uh, and that's, it's, it's apparent that that's going to happen. So everyone's sort of preparing in their own unique ways. And then, um, and the Leonardo DiCaprio's character, the scientist returns to his family. Um, his, uh, he, he had sort of estranged himself by having an affair prior to that. He returns to his family though, and brings his, his doctoral student, um, played by Jennifer Lawrence and she brings Yule who's the boyfriend uh, and so it's it's uh DiCaprio's family and Jennifer Lawrence and her boyfriend all around the table and then yeah it's that prayer from Yule that just totally totally comes out of nowhere you are not expecting that at all he, yeah. he has been up to that point in the film one of the maybe not up to that point but it certainly was introduced and at other points he's sort of a less profound figure like you said he just seems like a um simple Midwest kind of skater guy. He's got the long hair of it. He wears the beanie and uh, is certainly a friendly chap, but not one that you would look to to save everybody. And then he says grace in this absolutely beautiful and unexpected way at the end of the movie and then basically cut to credits almost. You know, it's, uh, there's, yeah. there's a little bit more a little bit more to it than that. But Well, and the funny thing that happens before that, well, not funny, I mean, just kind of intriguing thing that happens before that is Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Professor Mindy, I think his name is, yep. um, his, his just sort of, it just sort of wells up within him all of a sudden that he's a man of science. He's not a man of prayer. 
He's not a religious person. And he says, you know, we don't pray in this house. We're not a religious household or whatever. But he says, it, it, he says something like, it would be appropriate, wouldn't it, to say amen right now? Yeah. You know, it's like, it sort of reveals. And again, this is one of the things that you don't quite know whether Adam McKay meant this with the depth that people like us anyway kind of perceive it. But that we just know deep within us, we know that the only response is, 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 a, is, a, is a moment of prayer. You know, yeah. that, that when we're contemplating our mortality, when we're really facing the end, whether that's our natural deaths or some kind of catastrophic event that's happening in the life of the world or, you know, whatever it may be, some kind of crisis or, or trauma that we're having in our lives, we just can't help it. It's like yeah. we're hardwired for it. And so, you know, this, this man of science with no religion just decides it's a moment of prayer. And, you know, thank God this, this burnout uh, Yule is there who can kind of provide the, the, the gift to the rest of the people. Yeah. And to, to, uh, to add maybe one additional piece of analysis to that, uh, amen obviously means let it be. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a statement of, you know, completion or a statement of affirmation. And so on one level, it's funny, right? Oh, the scientist thinks you just pray by saying amen when you're holding hands at the dinner table. That's not what a prayer is. Um, but what he's saying, like, this is literally the end of the world. And he's saying, I guess we should say amen. It is done. Um, and Yule says basically not so fast. This is how you do it. You know, and he actually yeah. basically commends him and his uh, his companions at the dinner table uh, to the hands of God, which is a pretty cool and very Christian way to end the film. Yeah, and they don't hedge on that at all. I mean, the prayer yeah. that he offers is is a one. It was it's exactly the kind of prayer that I remember hearing in evangelical circles in my teen years. I mean, it's uh, it's not some you know vague prayer to some yeah. spirit in the sky or something like that. Right. I mean, it is to the God and Father of us all. You know, yep. it is it is. I mean, to us Christians, it is to the to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of right. the world. Right. Right. Um, so to me, that was just the most fascinating thing that, and, you know, I sort of characterize that whole part where she meets Yule all the way to the end of, of the movie as this sort of really spiritual third act that mm -hmm. I, I almost, I almost didn't see coming, you know, because before that you've got sort of all this political stuff with the president and her kind of idiot son played by, um, Jonah, Jonah Hill, Hill. <laughs> um, you know, who's like almost, almost just too ridiculous to believe in yeah. his, you know, his disdain for, you know, for people who don't see things the way he does and all of yeah. that kind of thing and just how, how much of a fool he is. Um, so there's all of that. And then there's the whole media thing, you know, there's, yeah. there's uh, Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett who play these like talk show hosts, you know, and to me, their roles were so interesting because they, they just represent how, you know, in our culture, we have all of these we have all of this media, but it doesn't know what to do with mm -hmm. something really serious. You know, I mean, everything seems serious, like, oh, my goodness, what's today's crisis and how are right. we reacting or something right. like that. But it's so obviously packaged for uh, for our reaction, for, you know, for a, a kind of event that that sort of looks good on camera or mm -hmm. that kind of plays well, you know, being shared over social media or something like that. But when someone comes on your TV show and says, I have calculations proving a comet's about to hit our country or about to hit our world and destroy us all, they just don't know what to do, you know? So what ends up happening is, you know, Professor Mindy, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, ends up getting put into this box of this sort of sexy scientist. And his graduate student, Kate, ends up you know, taking on the persona of this sort of alarmist, hysterical person, you know, who becomes kind of a meme for, you know, yeah. people freaking out unnecessarily. And how often do we see that in our world today that like, you know, we, we, we want to put 
we want to put people, whether they're spokesmen for this or that, or they represent one view or another into these different categories. And then we sort of ally ourselves, don't we, with, with one or the other. We, we sort of, you know, it's, it's not really the message that matters, but the messenger. Um, and, um, you know, this plays out in so many different ways in the movie, coming back to your point about the hat that says, don't look up, that mm -hmm. they're developed in these two camps, the don't look up camp and the look up camp. Um, and then there are these like funny moments where there are these sort of, you know, can't we all just sort of, you know, get along and bring it together? Like, let's look up and right. down and, you know, and yeah. it, similar to the same kind of like sort of silly, uh, kind of empty reconciliatory rhetoric that we hear yep. from time to time in our own media now. Yeah, real quick, my favorite line from Jonah Hill's character was when um, he was talking to um, Kate Dibiaski and uh, and who play, played by Jennifer Lawrence and uh, DiCaprio's uh, Professor Mindy. And he finds out that um, Kate is a doctoral student at, it is Kate, right? Am I remembering that correctly? I believe it's Kate, yeah. yeah. So he finds out that Kate is a doctoral student at Michigan State. And he looks right. at everyone. He's like, "Come on, really, Michigan State?" <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's just scoffing because yeah. it's not an Ivy League institution, right? And MIT. they make much ado over. They need to kind of they need to talk to some sort of Harvard and Princeton and Yale people, yeah. you know, yeah. to kind of verify what they're hearing. Which, again, I mean, I think that that's one of the major subtexts of the film that resonates with viewers is this elitism yeah. business. You know, um, we live in this world of credentialism and. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, it, it really, truth is this very elusive thing compared to some of these other more, uh, more surface uh, issues of credentials yeah. or what the messenger looks like, you know, all these sorts of things. Yeah, could not agree with you more. I think the, uh, the media point's really interesting as well, uh, because in the movie, they are constitutionally incapable of dealing with an actual crisis. Um, and it's not totally clear why. I think part of it's because the media personalities themselves, Blanchett and Perry in this case, uh, don't really have a sort of heuristic for wrestling with that. And part of it is because of their revenue model, just like is, is the case with today's 24-hour news cycle. The revenue model does not allow for news that people are not ready to hear. It, it definitely incentivizes the news that people um, uh, the news that people either want to hear or the news that, that scares them. Um, but this is a different thing entirely because this isn't simply, you know, we're going to scare you to, um, to watch more news. This is something that is, uh, so cataclysmic, literally, uh, that they just can't, they can't fit it into their model. That's, they, they don't have a framework for doing that, for broadcasting news about the literal end of the world that is upon us and there's nothing that we can do about it. So they end up just, um, just really burying their heads in the sand. And it's a very interesting thought experiment uh, to ask what what would happen if we were facing the end of the world and there was nothing we could do about it, what would the news be telling us about? Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting in the film to see that 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 it, it plays out exactly as you say in their in their first appearance when they come on the show. You know, yeah. I mean, they, they they sort of don't know what to say to these astrophysicists. I mean, they're, they're sitting there telling them that the end of the world is coming, and all they can think to say is, "What you know? Do you think there are aliens on you know life on other planets or something <laughs> right. like that?" Right? Yeah. But then the narrative shifts in the culture, and people really do start to freak out about this sort of impending doom. And I don't know about you, but I mean, I felt like. It was like it was sort of a deja vu experience watching the way the media has sort of, you know, flown in one direction after another after another with the pandemic stuff. You know, I mean, it's sort of like once it sort of becomes it, like they, they do ultimately sort of know how to how to tell the story, but it has to sort of become the 
we're talking about what everybody's talking about thing, you know? And then, as you say, it becomes this sort of commodity that people want to consume, um, which is a a really different thing than, than telling the news. And, and, you know, from a kind of evangelist perspective, you might think of it in terms of like telling the good news, right? I mean, um, we, we try to package it in ways I suppose that people want to consume, but ultimately it's, it's always going to be a bit of a bitter pill to swallow. I mean, it does, it doesn't fit in any of the, any of the categories that people are used to seeing it in. So anyway, that's a bit of an aside, but uh, it, it just, it's very interesting in the film to see the way in which the story sort of ebbs and flows and the way that it mm-hmm. develops and becomes this, this thing for a while Um where okay fine let's let's accept that the world is going to end how do we tell that story in this kind of way yeah. that fits our our profit model as you say yeah i like your point about how you know we we receive it now in the context of what we've experienced recently um adam mckay like you said has been upfront about saying this is a movie about climate change that's you know he he wrote it in a pre-covid world and his target was climate change and the the subtext there it's it's not even really a subtext it is it is a bit on the nose i think uh, is we're all ignoring the absolute catastrophe that is climate change. It's barreling toward us. There's very little that we can do to stop it. If we have a chance to stop it, it's only through you know collective action and recognition of the problem. Short of that, we're all going to face total annihilation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I think that that comparison fails on a number of levels. And actually, I'll, I'll recommend um, Eric Levitz's article in the New York in New York Magazine that describes why exactly that that comparison is not apt. I would I would uh, posit that this is actually a better sort of pandemic movie than a climate change movie um, because of the ways that it, it it forces us to examine what does what does our life look like in the face of the end, right? Mortality comes to us all. Maybe it won't come from a, a spike protein in a virus. Maybe it won't come from a comet, but it will come for each of us. Death will come knocking. Uh, memento mori uh, in the Catholic tradition, you will die someday. Um, so it forces us to, to answer that question. And then uh, I think also this whole expert class uh, argument line of argumentation is really really interesting. Um, the the movie wants to posit that there is the expert class that is correct, and then there is uh, basically everyone else who ignores them. Right <laughs> from from the media uh, to politicians in the halls of power to the people on the streets who are just so sort of immersed in their TikToks that they don't really care what the experts are saying. There's there's something to that for sure, but that message actually I think has less sort of purchase right now in early 2022 than it would have two years ago in early 2020, um, because the expert class um, has been, has sort of, I think, been exposed uh, largely in COVID um, as not knowing what they're talking about. Um, and also, by the way, they're not monolithic, right? So there are experts that the, the expert, the, there is no singular expert classes, I guess, is sort of one of my main points. There are experts who have varying uh, views on you know how effective masks are, for example, should we mask children in schools? Um, how many, how far apart should the boosters be from the vaccine? Which vaccine offers the most protection? Uh, what's the best you know protective measure for uh, in the, the octogenarians and above in the face of COVID? Uh, what do we do with the economy, et cetera? Um, and so there is no singular expert class, but also there are a lot of experts, uh, experts whose opinions have been largely. Um, largely sort of followed and trumpeted in media, and those opinions have ended up being wrong. Um, and so I think so. So I think now we look at this and say, okay, the experts say that. Who cares, right? That's right. Uh, I, I sort of watch the movie now, and honestly, I'm more sympathetic to the "don't look up" crowd um, than I think I would have been in 2020. 
because uh, the experts fail us. And that's a very real thing that I think the expert class needs to wrestle with, you know, and I think hopefully maybe it won't, it probably won't happen, but maybe this, this film offers some opportunity for the expert class uh, to the, to the extent that it is monolithic uh, to say, okay, maybe we, maybe we miss the mark sometimes. How can we make our message more relevant? And most importantly, how can we make sure that we are credible to people? Because without the credibility, there's, there's nothing. Yeah, I think that all of that is right on that you've just said. I, I mean, I think that there's like a, a deep, um, if not distrust, there's a there's a there's a, a reticence now about expertise um, that that didn't. I mean, that that's pretty widespread. I would say in the culture that that wasn't the case uh, a couple of years ago, probably. Yeah. And I think the movie actually handles that that idea relatively well. And and I mean that. You know the main experts in the in the movie, and particularly the the Leonardo DiCaprio character. Mm -hmm. He um, ultimately doesn't prove himself. I mean, he comes back around at the end and yeah. sort of has this sort of you know this this um, redemption moment uh, right. of, of sorts. But he does not stay the course as a man of principle. I mean, he he gets sucked into this world of you know crafting a message that people want to yep. hear, and you know he 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 ends up really not having. Um, standing with kind of the full stature, the full integrity of this sort of, you know, un, um, you know, a uh, 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 irreproachable man of science, right? Right. right. Um, so I think that's that's really important. The other thing is there's this other figure in the movie um, played by Mark Rylance. I now forget the name of his character, but he's this billionaire character, you know? Oh who, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Um, him, yeah. Who he's also kind of like, he's kind of like a mashup of like Bill Gates and Elon Musk. Yeah. And, and that's right. And I mean, he's this billionaire, billionaire figure who's, you know, um, a bit of, you know, very much a caricature of these kinds of eccentric billionaire types. Peter Isherwell. Sorry. That's the name of the character. Isherwell. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Peter Ish Isherwell. And, um, he, but he also kind of represents the expert class, you know mm -hmm. I mean? He, totally. and yet he clashes with the experts because he wants to kind of, he thinks they think too small, you know, mm -hmm. that, that, that the experts say, okay, look, we have this data, uh, we've got this comet, we have to eradicate it. That's, that's all we can do. And he says, ah, no, but the real expert, the real, the real genius in the modern world would say, how can we not only take this catastrophe and get rid of it, but how can we turn this catastrophe into a blessing? Um, and you see then the tension sort of among the elite class about like, what do we do then? Do we do we like take this extra risk and try and do something different other than just right. like send a rocket up into the sky and blow this comet up so it won't hit the earth? And um, you know, and and they also the McKay isn't facile about which one ultimately would have been the best option. You know, there there kind of is this sense at the end that oh well, if they had just followed the original course and cr constructed some plan and tried to destroy the comet or something, followed the original expert advice, then everything would have been mm -hmm. okay. But we don't know for sure because right. we didn't actually see the the experiment work and we didn't, you know, yep. so we're left kind of thinking, we don't really know for sure who, who was right in the end uh, among the experts. The other thing that I think McKay um, refreshingly didn't do was he didn't, he didn't give us this just kind of, you know, bald face um, sort of, um, apology for uh, voting in one particular direction or the other, mm -hmm. right? Like you don't have this message at the end of the movie, which is essentially like, hey, America, if everybody just voted the right way, everything would be fine. Because I just don't, you know, it, it does it does happen that it seems like the, the president in this movie is a bit of a right-wing demagogue, but it, it's not clear at the end of the movie that 
you know, somebody representing some other ideology ideology would be, would have done anything any better. Yeah. So, uh, so I was, I was kind of appreciative of all of, all of that, that it, it was more nuanced than just kind of the, you know, the, the easy partisan answers. Yeah. I, I totally appreciate all that. And I'm glad you brought up, uh, the Peter Isherwell character because there is this, um, there is this, uh, examination, maybe a bit on the nose, but probably, probably appropriate, uh, of sort of big tech in that regard, because bash cellular is his company and bash cellular is kind of like, I don't know, it's a, probably a mashup of, uh, I don't know, Google, uh, SpaceX and Facebook, you know, all, all together, they sort of run every bit of our ecosystem and the metaverse yeah. and have rockets and all this stuff. Um, and it is basically like it's 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 a stand-in for big tech, I think, uh, and it's not good at all. You know, you have Peter Isherwell who sort of speaks in the language of tech titans, right? We have to do good for humanity. We have yeah. to we have to you know enhance the general welfare, promote well-being throughout the world, et cetera. And actually, what he wants to do is advance advance well-being for himself and his cronies um, at the expense yeah. of of everyone else. You know, and so there's. The, the emperor has no clothes um, for big tech in the movie, which I think is uh, is also a good insight. Yeah, and one of the I think one of the best lines in the entire movie is when somebody is talking about this Isherwell character, you know, and and uh, and whoever it is says, um, "Oh yeah, that's the guy who bought the Gutenberg Bible and then lost it," um, which sort of reveals like yeah. how big tech talks in this language, this sort of humane language, but underneath it's not the the real sort of humane understanding of existence kind of isn't there you know yeah. it's it's like you know having a gutenberg bible is just another acquisition you know it's yeah. just another asset right ultimately yeah um well i mean so even me, that, even that really yeah it's to i totally agree even that is a really rich spiritual metaphor because you're going yeah. back to our point about yule and yule being yule ends up being sort of the guiding light for humanity around that dinner table at the end of the movie uh the guy who thinks that he is the guiding light of humanity this peter Ishwell character is the one who who literally lost the plot, you know, the pl the plot being the, the Bible, right? The Bible, right. Uh, God's divine word of God that shows us uh, who we are, where we come from, where we're going. He he literally lost it, you know. So yeah. again, very on the nose, but he lost the plot. He doesn't know he doesn't know uh, how to sort of understand his situation, and um, his, his hubris now knows no bounds because he has no concept of God. He yeah, and in God. fact, I mean, kind of the sinister, sort of a darker read of his character is, I mean, he really has sort of assumed a divine role for yeah. himself. Yeah, there is and, there's an I mean, antichrist element there. Yeah, I mean, he's even invented this tech, right? Which, right. which is again kind of on the nose. This idea that like all you know, all of the sort of consumer purchases that we make and all yeah. of the data that we put into the, into the you know internet and all that sort of thing can in his world accurately predict your time and means of death even, yeah. you know, I mean, it's like, it, it becomes this sort of, you know, this kind of alternate version of Providence actually yeah. that he yeah. controls. And, you know, just one more thing about him is then the very, very end of the movie, and maybe this part we won't give away, but I mean, you know, there's this sort of extra ending part uh, to the movie that further <laughs> reveals this, this mentality, which is like, if we could only have enough wealth yeah. and enough tech, we maybe don't ever have to die. Yeah. Like we maybe we can really control our own destiny and expose the lie of these dumb Christians who think the world has to end. Yeah. Um, I, I was surprised uh, in general to see that this was a work of Adam McKay. Uh, because as you said, some of Adam McKay's movies are not ones that I would recommend to, to anyone without significant caveats, you know? 
Um, Adam McKay is also, I'm pretty sure, an executive producer of um, uh, of Succession, the hit HBO show. That's really all about just you know naked power and um, you know uh, sort of property quarrels among an elite family and its associates in New York City uh, that run a, a media um, media conglomerate. Um, and then Adam McKay's done a lot of collaborations with Will Ferrell, you know, as just a, a almost slapstick comedian yeah. um, type. So uh, really interesting to see his name on here. But but having watched this, uh, Andrew, I wonder, I wonder what his personal convictions are about the existence of God and about where we are. Because this this movie is saying more profound things than I initially gave it credit for um, when I you know had watched the first thirty minutes of it. And I wonder what what's going on in, in Adam McKay's mind. What is what is God doing in his soul? Uh, right now, it's it's uh, it's always interesting to think about that. Let's pray for him. That's for sure. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. I wanted to get your take on this Ross Douthat column that I mentioned, uh, where he's saying that we need sex and romance at the movies. Um, and I'll I'll, have, I'll try to do a segue here, and you can tell me this is a good segue, uh, Andrew. But um, Yul, going back to Yul's character and uh, and Kate, the PhD student who's the one, the one who discovers the comet. They obviously are in a relationship, um, and it, it's a, relation, a relationship that sort of just happens. It doesn't seem to be particularly passionate, but Yul really seems to like her. She maybe I think she enjoys his company, but there's, it's, it seems like a it seems like the passion, if there is any, is more one sided, uh, uh, and and Yul's the one who has the passion. There's this one point where they're driving in the car. Yul's in the back seat, Kate's in the passenger seat, and Professor Mindy DiCaprio is in the driver's seat. Um, and you'll, you'll basically says to her, says to, uh, Kate, um, Hey, I really like you. Um, we should do something about it. Like, like maybe get engaged or something. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and she like laughs and then she says, sure, you know, he's the end of the world. Why not? Let's get engaged. Um, and so I think, uh, this is, this is probably a good segue. I'll, I'll let you give me a rating for the segue here, but I think this is a, is a good foray to this doubt that, uh, op-ed which is saying look we we've lost we've lost this sense of deep abiding love stories and passion in our romances you know we we see some romances on screen um they happen here and there but it's been a long time since we've had like a really good romantic movie um mm -hmm. or even as he says a sex movie uh we just don't have those things anymore uh and we need more of those um and yeah. he, he has he has these various reasons but uh but what do you think of that for a segue how do i do I think that's a good segue. I mean, I, I think arguably Yule is is a bit of a romantic. Like yeah. Yule, Yule maybe is the only one in the movie who has this kind of romantic sensibility. And so, yeah, he's sort of falling in love with this with this like quirky grad student girl who comes into his life, even though up to the point where she agrees to you know get engaged with him as the the world seems to be coming to an end, she is you know uh, she's only interested in him because there's nobody else around and heck why the heck not let's just get you know let's have some physical contact because why not you know that kind of thing and she really does seem to represent sort of something more like the hookup culture just yeah. kind of a a passionless um you know uh, the 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 kind of culture that seems to really not have um eros anymore you know right. the the sort of this sense of um a, a mysterious romantic uh sensibility anymore okay. Um, and I think that this is something that Douthat is getting at and something that I notice about, about recent movies as well. You know, Douthat has this bigger, this bigger thesis about decadence in, mm -hmm. in films in particular. And it's, it's one that I think is, is right. I mean, I think that, um, you know, he identifies that a lot of cinema is characterized by, 
you know, um, reboots, sequels, you know, resurrecting the same plots and, and themes and franchises and all these kinds of things. And to him, this represents kind of an exhausted culture, just a culture that sort of doesn't really know, doesn't, isn't really passionate about anything, just kind of wants to see things to divert its attention from other things. And, you know, he, he has he has some points and, and maybe isn't entirely right about all of it. But the love story stuff, I think, is is pretty spot on. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and you can notice this in various ways. I know that Douthat mentions this with regard to Disney movies that, you know, uh, a lot of recent Disney movies don't have. Um, they're good. They're perfectly good. You know, um, movies like Coco or um, uh, uh, Encanto or, you know, some of the some of the more recent animated ones. They're very, very good. Mm -hmm. But they don't have that kind of fairy tale. Um, they don't have the shape of a fairy tale anymore, which almost always includes a love story. Why does it always include a love story? Because um, on some level, and again, this isn't necessarily something that that like the storytellers or filmmakers are always entirely like conscious of. But mm -hmm. for Christians, we can point to, you know, this sort of eschatological view of the um, uh, of the bridegroom Christ and mm -hmm. and the church, his bride. Right. That that we have sort of this longing within us, and this is why Christianity, to some degree, makes sense because we have this desire for this like consummation to like yep. to be loved by the one who loved us into existence. Right. Yep. Um, and a simple love story that has a kind of mystery about it. Like, uh, you know, a boy, I know it sounds so simple, but like, you know, a boy and girl fall in love with each other. Maybe the love is forbidden. Maybe there are complications, right? We are just naturally very interested in seeing that story resolve itself well, right? The fairy tale, and they lived happily ever after. We want to see that. Um, and, you know, so a lot of these stories that are being told nowadays are good stories, and they say other things. They have other good sort of, um, messages of virtue, perhaps like me maybe messages of sacrifice or like how much family matters, like all sure. kinds of different yeah. things. Um, but they're, they're sort of lacking this almost like primeval sort of like romantic thing. Um, you know, whether that's like superhero movies or Disney movies or, you know, uh, just whatever you're running, run of the mill stuff, but what you sadly have in its place instead of Eros, instead of kind of the mystery of love is you just have, um, something more akin to pornography. You have basically just sort of, um, you know, just the sense of the physical. Yep. Um, and, you know, this is something that one of my favorite writers, Sir Roger Scruton wrote about, you know, that, that, that it's like, you know, the difference between pornography and art and the difference is mystery. If you look at the, the painting of the birth of Venus at the Uffizi gallery in, in Florence, for example, Nobody would stand in the, stand in front of that painting of a naked woman and say, "Oh, that's obscene." Mm -hmm. You just wouldn't, right? Mm -hmm. You just wouldn't. You would look at it and you would see beauty and mystery in it, right? Whereas a work of pornography, you would instantly go, "Oh gosh," you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it would it would have a completely different reaction. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to say. Uh, say in response to what you just said. First of all, totally agree. Um, I think, uh, and I agree with um, Douthat's thesis uh, almost entirely. I mean, I think he does say that we sort of are lacking the the sex movie. I don't know. I think what we're really missing is the romance movie. I think I agree yep. more with what you're saying that um, where there is um, passion uh, or, or where there is sort of a, 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 a romantic entanglement, what we get is sort of just like a, a mere carnal substitution. There's no real eros there. There's no real passion. There's just sort of physical desire and that's it. Um, and so in, in movies where it happens now, when you have a romance, 
that's why the characters are just you know hopping in bed on the first date um, or why they're content with one night stands. There's no like abiding sense of, of sacrificial love. Um, there's no, I think we've lost this idea of sort of love at first sight um, till death do us part because it's all, it's all just about sort of the, the physical now. Um, and I worry about where that's coming from. It's certainly not coming from the movies. The movies uh, are not, uh, movies can shape culture, but movies are also shaped by culture. Yes. And, and that problem is coming from something prior to, you know, antecedent to the film industry. Um, as I was reading Dalvitt's piece, I was also thinking about this article I read in the past couple months by Jonah Goldberg, who's a conservative writer at The Dispatch. I read Jonah from time to time. And he had this article, I pulled it up here. It was written in, okay, so November, November 19th, 2021. And the title of this is, I think, Returning Japanese. I really think so. This is one of his um, email dispatches called The G-File. And he, he goes on to talk about basically how um, we are becoming miserable. Um, he uses as a starting point a uh, piece by Yuval Levin, who's a, um, uh, he kind of dabbles in philosophy and sociology, but he's a, he's a DC think tank guy um, who, wrote a, who wrote a piece um, uh, in the dispatch talking about this same problem uh, and commenting on a report on fertility and family formation um, that was issued by AEI a few weeks prior. And Yuval writes that he was struck by the report because it embodies a significant change in how we think about the basic character of social breakdown in America and what we take to be the obstacles to human flourishing in our time. Um, he says, not long ago, it would have been, this is still Levin writing, not long ago, it would have been taken for granted that social order in our free society is a function of our capacity to restrain and govern our most intense longings. Human beings are moved by passionate desires for things like pleasure, status, wealth, and power. And so, um, so basically, one of the one of the uh, hypotheses is that we have lost the lost these passionate desires. And so, when you lose passion, you lose the sort of impulse uh, impulse to move, um, and to do things, and to build things, and to um, produce. And then, so uh, later in this in this article, Goldberg links it to Japan. He says um, this all brings me to Japan. About a decade ago, people started noticing that something was amiss in the land of the rising sun. People weren't having sex, at least not a lot of it. A 2013 survey by the Japan Family Planning Association found that 45% of women aged 16 to 24, quote, were not interested in or despised sexual contact. More than one in four felt the same way. Terms like hikikomori, which is shut-ins or hermits, and parasito shingurus, which is parasite singles, in other words, adults who are still living with their parents into their mid-30s, became popular buzzwords. Otakus, which is geeks, cared more about playing esports than playing the field at bars. Soshoku danshi, herbivore men, that's the translation, or grass eater men are passive, unassertive men who have lost any interest, any interest in marriage or manliness as traditionally understood. Um, a lot has been written about this, uh, and many of the factors you fall identifies are often part of the diagnosis. But basically, this, that is a major problem, uh, and it has led to this massive demographic shift in Japan, uh, and major economic problems too, because you have less productive younger generations. You have the, uh, what was the term? The uh, parasite singles, the adults who are still living with their parents, the parasito shingurus. Um, and and maybe maybe that's uh, you know maybe we're not too far too far away from that. Yeah, and I think the, um, the the movies are maybe a reflection of our sort of lack of lack of passion in these regards. Yeah, I wonder. Uh, a hunch of mine is just that this has to do with the smartphone revolution and just kind of the. You know, just how younger people, uh, you know, they, they're just coming of age uh, with their entire existence mediated through 
mediated yes. through phones. And, and uh, you know, so I mean, even like, even like young men, I mean, this is something I even talk about with my, my son that, um, you know, a young man would rather uh, play a video game where he can create a world on a game like Minecraft, right, then actually create something with his hands, you know. Yep. Um, and, and I think that that is having an impact on kind of physical relationships as well. Um, I think another thing that might be happening is uh, this awareness, which is a very good thing that's come out of the Me Too movement, uh, which is that, um, you know, that, that men in particular can't just have their way. I mean, they can't mm -hmm. just, they can't just, you know, act on their impulses and their urges. Right. Um, which is good. That's true. That's very true. Um, but I, I wonder if it's created in young men and women, um, almost a kind of fear of real intimacy. Uh, I, you know, again, that's just sort of a hunch, uh, that I have, but, um, you know, I was thinking about this when I, I agree. I think that the, I think films, nowadays really are struggling with this like being being unable mm -hmm. to tell kind of a real love story um, yeah and maybe it's rooted in a couple of these things that that i was mentioning but there are some filmmakers who still get it right or mostly right and i was thinking about um i think there are certain european filmmakers in particular who who do um there's a filmmaker i really like named paolo sorrentino who directed a great film called the great beauty back in 2013 it's a masterpiece fantastic film okay um but he just came out with a new film and it's on Netflix. It's called The Hand of God. And I reviewed this film as well. Um, and it's sort of a coming of age story set in the 1980s about this boy who undergoes some tragedy in his life. But obviously it's well before smartphones or computers or yeah. you know stuff like that. And he has a series of experiences, which like, you know, if you're, if you're a little sensitive about like seeing nudity in movies and like stuff like that, like, you know, this might not be the movie for you, but um, you know, he ends up like, you know, seeing, a real naked woman, like with his real eyes, you know, and, um, and then he also undergoes these losses in his life, like people die who are close to him and all this sort of thing. And it all sort of heads in this direction of him becoming fascinated with the theater and with, and, and, and this is called the hand, this, the hand of God. It's called the hand of God. Yeah. And the, the title of the movie is related to the famous goal from the 1986 world cup by Diego yeah. Maradona. Yeah. Um, if you're a soccer fan, um, but anyway, the movie, I, I digress, but the movie really encapsulates this. And it's something that I identified with. I mean, this, you know, the movie is set a little bit before I would have been coming of age, but you know, there was a lot of it that I identified with, like the, just this sense of like this, this physicality that's also kind of soulful and that like creates this like desire for mystery and like just this understanding that love is this like very, like, I don't know, spiritual thing, holy yeah. thing, you know, in yeah. a way that even like a kind of simple encounter can spark something magical. Um, and so this movie was really refreshing to me in that regard, because there just aren't a lot of things like that out right now. Yeah. Um, but it's a complicated issue. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I, I'm wondering if maybe the, the pendulum will swing back at some point and we'll kind of look back on this age as some as a very sort of cold time. I don't know. I don't know either. I, I uh, am sympathetic to your argument about smartphones, though the smartphone revolution. Um, I just wonder. I just wonder if there's an escape from the smartphone re revolution. Um, the irony is, uh, China gets gets so many things wrong, especially on human rights, and they are almost never a model for us in any regard. But I do think it's interesting that the Chinese Communist Party has been proactive in limiting its kids' screen time. Um, so much so that they've even, they, there's like, there are, na I mean, this is not the way to go about it, national mandates, but, uh, but they recognize this as a problem is what I'm saying. 
Um, and they have like national mandates limiting the video game time per week that children can can uh, spend. Um, you know, and they and this, this is part of like a, an overall sort of digital strategy about protecting their population. Now, I am I want to be clear, I'm not advocating for anything like that in the West. I'm just saying this is this is a real problem, and um, you know, even an authoritarian government like China uh, recognizes that its people are not best served. Um, through having phones in their pockets and access to technology yeah. like that all the time. Um, I think uh, I think you're absolutely right that having access to everything, TikTok videos, for example, you know, I, I talked to an adult man who told me that he probably does two hours, watches two hours of TikTok videos every single day. Wow. And, uh, and a filmmaker has a real challenge in like telling these sweeping beauties of, uh, sweeping movies of beauty and passion when they're competing with, uh, these, I mean, I don't even know how long, I don't have TikTok, but I think they're like, you know, five to 20 second long videos, generally speaking, right? So how do you compete with that? Um, these these videos that are, and literally, like they're specifically engineered, TikTok as an app is engineered to maximize the dopamine and serotonin hits in the human brain, right? Mm -hmm. And and the movies and the stories that, that good filmmakers tell are not engineered in the same way, with good reason. But how do you compete with that? You, you don't, right. right? And so to your point about how people would rather build like a Minecraft or a Fortnite world, I think people would rather would rather interact. There is no real interaction, but they'd rather interact with, you know, a, um, a porn star or something on their phones or on their yeah. tablets, computer, whatever, than actually, to, to doubt this point, go to the bar and play the field. There's there's, there's much less risk, right? Oh, yeah. Um, much less risk, and there's, there's more sort of um, more guaranteed brain chemistry surges of the things, you know, the dopamine and the serotonin or whatever, um, as opposed to the the risk of exposure or humiliation that you have if you go to a bar and, and try to play the field. Now, like, you know, going to a bar and playing the field is not something that I'm, I'm advocating for and neither sure. is Dalvit, but just pointing right. to it as a trend, like that's not happening. What's happening instead is the two hours of TikTok and the Pornhub and whatever else. Yeah, and a few years ago, there was a great book, um, uh, called iGen by Jean Twenge. And she talked about, she sort of prophesied some of this as well. I mean, right down to things like teenagers aren't even getting their driver's licenses anymore. You know, like, I mean, when I was, when I turned 16, I couldn't wait. I, I totally, mean, absolutely yeah. couldn't wait to go get yep. my driver's license. And um, nowadays they just don't care. I mean, yep. where, where is there to go? I mean, right. you know, it's not really anywhere. All my friends are online. Yeah. yeah. My, my world that I built for myself is online. Why would I go anywhere? And I'm sure you've observed and, you know, here I'm just sounding like an old fuddy-duddy now, but I mean, we, you know, my wife and I observe this all the time that when we, we will see young people actually out doing something and they're all just looking at their phones, they're yeah. not actually, you know, interacting with each yeah. other, like sort of, I don't know, like understanding each other as these like embodied souls that are moving along in the world next to them. Yeah. So yeah, my, my least with, favorite is the uh, is the like young parents we see out with their kids and like their kid does something cute and the parents like oh let me just get a picture of it and so they spend yeah. more time like pulling up the camera on their phone than just being present with their child. We have I, yeah. we have like an appallingly low number of pictures of our kids because we try we try I'm not saying that we're perfect we're certainly not perfect but we one thing we try to do is like be actually present in the moment and so there are less you know candid shots that we have of our kids because we're trying to like be there and fully experience it with them and I think that's a good thing. I agree. One of my favorite tweets of all time is from the actor Bill Murray, who once tweeted, um, I can remember a time when I would go all day without taking a picture of anything, um, which I think <laughs> yeah, that all the time, like how, how many yeah. days do I go where I've, yeah. I've taken a picture of uh, nothing, where yeah. I don't feel the need to mediate my experience yeah. through, through, my, through my device and then sort of translate it back out into the world through a social media account. 
um, you know, I don't want to, I'm not holding myself up as someone who's holier than thou on this. I, I do, yeah, you know, here. I do, yeah. I do these things and it's the water that we swim in right now. Yeah. So, yeah. but I do think it, it's taking a toll on, on our, on our ability to really, um, to really love each other, to be honest, yeah. uh, to really live yeah. in the world. I completely agree with you. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully there's a way out. I mean, the, uh, we know that Jesus wins in the end. Um, but I think there is a real challenge for people like you and me and for serious Catholics um, out there, uh, or even non-Catholics who just recognize this as a problem. And there's, there's a serious question about how do we, how do we move forward? How do we get out of the, the smartphone world? So any, any parting words of wisdom before we wrap up on that, Andrew? Well, all I'd say is to maybe bring it back around to uh, don't look up. You know, the whole time I'm watching the movie, I thought to myself, well, I, I really hope a comet doesn't come and destroy the earth. I have lots of things I'd like to do with my life. I have children yeah. I'd like to see grow up and that sort of thing. Yeah. But what if there was some kind of catastrophe that, you know, could just, I don't know, like destroy the internet or something like that. Now yeah. that would be really bad. That would be really bad for a while, but hey, maybe that would be a blessing. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm not wishing anything like that, but at the same sure, time, sure. there's part of me that's curious, that's curious about what the effect might yeah. be on humanity. Well, I've often, I've often wondered, and I've even wondered this out loud publicly, I've said, uh, I wonder if the internet is actually a net gain for humanity. Right. Like I, I get it, like it's enabled, you know, leaps in R and D and certainly medical advances and all that. And I have no doubt that at least many lives have been extended through the technologies that we gain through the internet. But I wonder if on net we become more fundamentally human because of the internet. I suspect we have not. Yeah. Uh, and if that's the case, then then that's not a good thing on balance. So. Well, especially now as we're being invited into the metaverse and all of that sort of thing. But here we are joining the yeah. ranks of the hypocrites who are using, you know, using the internet and modern technology to complain yes. about it. So, yeah, but, oh well. It's, so it's it very goes. true. Yeah, good point. Well, uh, Andrew, thanks for joining me today. It was uh, a pleasure to chat with you as it always is. Uh, I commend uh, your work on worldonfire.org to various folks where you are once again, uh, as I mentioned, the fellow of popular culture at the World on Fire Institute. Um, how else can people follow your work? Or if they want to read more of your stuff, um, where can they do it? You can catch up with me on Twitter at Andrew Pettiprin, and uh, or you can check out my website, andrewpettiprin.com. Perfect. And I will link those in the show notes, uh, as well as, uh, like I said, your article about it. Don't look up, Andrew. And I think you said you reviewed Hand of God, so I'm going to try to find that one as well, and we'll link that in the show notes. Absolutely. Great. All right, to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedle. Uh, appreciate you dialing in and watching or listening to this if you're on YouTube watching, if you're on a podcast player listening. Um, if you have any questions for me or Andrew, send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedlepodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you.